0: Go Loud presents Magnified with Matt Cooper. Sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect. Go Loud. Sounds better with us.
1: The criteria for being invited onto Magnified, my podcast that I do in kitchen table, is that you're an interesting person with interesting stories to tell and interesting career and future still to be lived out. And that very much applies to the guest today on the latest edition of Magnified. She is a dynamo who has, in seven years, established a highly profitable business with a big brand name which she has ambitions to grow much, much bigger, not just in Ireland and in Britain where she's been successful, but in many other parts of the world. So there's a good chance you have spotted the sculpted by Amy Stores? There's one at the top of Grafton Street in Dublin. She has one in the Kildare Village and she's opened at Belfast in London as well. Or you've seen the big displays in places like Dublin Airport as you go out to Terminal 1 or Terminal 2. She also is extraordinarily gifted at explaining her story, as you're going to hear in this podcast interview with Amy Connolly on the Magnified series. And of course, we again thank Strategic Power Connect for their assistance in this. Amy Connolly, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on the Magnified podcast. Certainly, my wife and daughters know all about you. So, I've had to learn about things like contouring and foundations (laughs) and brushes and sponges, etc., to prepare myself for this interview. So, tell us a little bit about Sculpted by Amy for those men in particular who might not be familiar with it. What is it? What's the range of products?
0: Okay, where do I start? Um, firstly, thank you for having me. I'm delighted that you had to educate yourself on all things cosmetics. Um, I founded Sculpt by Amy about seven years ago, and we are a beauty brand that essentially merges cosmetics and skincare into one. Our whole mission is to essentially simplify beauty. So to make it easy, which is particularly up your alley coming in kind of not really understanding what products go where and what we do with them. But I think in general as an industry, it can be really overwhelming given the volume of choice. So when I set out to find the brand all those years ago, I was actually working as a makeup tutor prior to that, all the while studying, etc. So I was very much always in that space of like, hang on a second, it doesn't have to be that complicated. You don't need those 72 products. You just need a few good trusted staples and this is how you do it. And that is very much carried through to today. So in terms of our product range and our portfolio, we very much play in the complexion space. Um, I think that's why we actually introduce skincare products.
1: But I was just about to ask you, what's the crossover you say cosmetics and skincare? So what's the difference?
0: So cosmetics would typically be like your foundations, your colour products and then your skincare is essentially the layer that goes on in the morning or the night that doesn't give you colour or coverage but might give you hydration, it might give you a vitamin C boost, like it's endless. But we essentially actually brought in two skincare products within the range, given the level of interest from our community. So we would be very much synonymous with the skincare ingredients within our complexion products. So just over time, by nature, people were saying, can you please do a serum? Can you please do a moisturiser? And we produce most of the range in South Korea who are particularly um, associated when it comes to skincare.
1: You said community there. Where other the business people would say customers? Yeah, I think
0: that's really important to me. Like people often say to me, if you had three seconds to think about it, what is the secret to success that Sculpted has had? And firstly, I need to caveat that. There is still so much left to be done. We are still learning all the time. But I often say the the truest thing at the base of everything of how we've been able to grow the brand and arguably the most difficult thing to replicate in new markets is the organic growth and love from our community. So essentially that really engaged, loyal customer base. And when I say community, it's that we try to involve them in as much as we can. So we're very approachable online. We're particularly approachable in our flagships. We might take their feedback on and create a product that they have suggested. Um, But essentially you make them feel part of the conversation. We might have them involved in our campaigns. So where someone might use models, we might have our customers, they're trialing products in advance. So we really do look at how we prioritize the customer, which has then become our community.
1: And social media has been enormously important to that, hasn't it? Huge.
0: Any business in our space cannot be a business without social media. And like I understand that it's often debated around the pros and cons, but ultimately for me, The pros have far outweighed the cons over my journey, both as an individual, as an artist, and also for the brand. And I think coming back to kind of our ethos around trying to make it simple, that's all done through education. And social media is an amazing platform to be able to do that. So we could launch a product in the morning. Firstly, it's instantaneous. I know in 24 hours who has it in their hands, what they think of it, what their feedback is, if they're wearing it, they're sending me a selfie of it. Or equally, we can do a tutorial saying, this is the product this is exactly how to use it and now you'll hopefully feel empowered on how to get the best value out of it so you can have so much visual content there just as much as if coming a platform to really create that engaged audience that then ultimately becomes your your cult community
1: How do you create a difference though from all of the brands that have been backed by the multinationals? Because even I'm familiar with names and from all the TV advertising, you see a Christmas for your L'Oreal's, Lancome's, Estee Lauder's. How does a small Irish brand actually play in that marketplace?
0: Yeah, like it's extremely busy and saturated. Um, I think the positive is all of us Are still in business. So there is room for everybody. But yeah, it's definitely one of the biggest challenges because you're up against their budgets. And I feel like over our trajectory and you know, we're on that globalization now, which is definitely a steep uphill task and journey because you are playing against those global players all of the time. But I feel like we've been really consistent. We've worked really hard and consistent in the sense of like the brand story hasn't changed. The The product quality has never been sacrificed. If anything, I think I prioritised the product functionality at the beginning before the brand story. So a lot of people would say to me, God, I feel like you just exploded two or three years ago. And actually, ironically, it's been very steady. It's been like 100% year on year growth, but like just this step change each year. So I think there is a secret in really knowing what you do and sticking to that. And that can be really overwhelming as well to do that when you are in an industry where there's a new trend, a new fad, a new person, a new social media platform happening all of the time to think, oh God, that's the new thing. Should we do that? And it's like, no, we don't play in trends. We play in your trusted makeup bag staple. So that's where we stay. So in terms of how we rival the bigger brands, I think it's a lot down to the community again that we've nurtured.
1: Because they have enormous marketing budgets to spend and they can advertise everywhere and could theoretically blow you out of it.
0: Yeah, And, and maybe in some ways they do but I think we live in a world now where we're no longer just interested by what the big billboards say. We want the humans, we want to connect with the people behind the brand, we want to see the hard work. So we have something called Sculpted Uncut, which is essentially a YouTube series where we take you behind the scenes of physically developing a product or a photo shoot or something that we might be doing because there's every day is different. But people love that because you're getting an insight into the real things that happen in a business or a beauty brand in our case. Whereas the big guys have, and listen, it's not to take away from any of their success, but they're so far removed from the customer in a way because there's just too many of them and there's too many chains of commands and there's too many humans making the shit move. So I think actually an indie brand like ourselves, which is often the industry term, has a lot of secret wins in how we can really be agile, speak to the customer, react to the customer and involve them.
1: But you have opened a number of flagship stores now, and you've been opening them quite regularly. You've been in London, in Carnaby Street. You've been in Belfast recently. And I think a lot of of our listeners here in Ireland will be familiar with your very prominent pink store (laughs) at the top of Grafton Street. But if people, I haven't been in the shop. I think my daughters have been in. But if you were to go in there, how does it differ from a conventional makeup store?
0: So I think, again, I mentioned in the beginning that we're very approachable as a brand. And I really don't take that lightly. Like when I'm training the store teams, I literally say to them, not only my expectations, our customers' expectations are huge because we have set ourselves on this pathway and tone where you come into our flagship. Essentially why I started them was, you know, we didn't need necessarily more stores. We're very lucky to be stocked in amazing stockists around the world. We're in over 500 doors. But I wanted a very sculpted 360 experiential hub that you cannot get in any other store because they don't physically have the space. for you to stock everything and secondly the sculpted ambassadors and also a little bit of a I suppose heritage back to my own beginning that I started on counter with the likes of Mac and Urban Decay. So it was very much a full circle moment coming back and being able to do that with my own brand. But when you go in there a lot of the times And I don't want to speak ill on behalf of any other brands or anything. But when I worked on counter, a lot of the feedback used to be, oh God, I'd be so nervous going in there. Oh God, the girls are very intimidating. Oh God, I wouldn't know where to start and I don't think they're going to help me. So our entire mission is someone comes in the door, they're literally joining the party. And I don't say that lightly. So it's like, hi, you're so welcome. Come on in. How can I help? There's no individual commission in the sense of that predator nature that it can cause it's very much you find the customer's problem and you give them a solution that works so if someone comes in to us and says I adore my Lancome mascara but I'm missing a foundation we're not going to try push the sculpted mascara on you because your one is working for you so we have many other solutions that we can offer you and that's just like a small taster we do a lot of events we do a lot of hen parties corporate events you know we really have the again, experiential suite in all the doors to be able to offer that and go the extra mile and make people, I suppose, want to come back.
1: Because some retailers are saying now, particularly with the trend towards online purchases, that the shop is essentially a display unit or an experience rather than somewhere where you necessarily sell a lot out of. But you are making the investment, as I said, in going to Belfast and going into London. So how many of these stores would you envisage developing?
0: So I think the the process of how we're choosing our flagships is very considered. So like I said, we are in and lucky to be in a lot of doors with amazing retail partners that we're choosing key cities carefully to be able to bring that one-stop destination. So you've mentioned we have... Dublin there, we have Kildare in Kildare Village, which is slightly different. We have Belfast and we have London. So our goal is to basically choose key destinations that are up and coming for us as a brand or we can see the trends via online traffic or via retailer traffic and plot a store there that allows people to have that special sculpted experience. But that doesn't mean that we want one on every corner of every street. Firstly, they're way too investment heavy to do that. And secondly, it takes the I suppose, the novelty away from having the flagships.
1: Your flagships are not in cheap locations either, (laughs) are they, (laughs) when it comes to commercial property?
0: No, but that was very deliberate. Like, I remember I opened Grafton Street last September, so September 22. And I had started looking the Christmas prior to that. And I just felt in my gut, we need this. We need a point of elevation in Ireland. We, you know, we're backing ourselves. We're coming the brand that are rivaling the global brands. We can see it in the rankings. We need that point now. And for me, Nowhere else would have offered that, whoa, you're on a high street, arguably the most expensive street in Dublin. And people told me I was crazy. Like they literally were like, you're mad. You must still be in a COVID fog. You're crazy. What are you doing? You're investing when everyone else is doing this. And I had such a strong gut. And I can honestly say, and touch wood, it stays this way. It is one of the best things we've ever done. And, you know, you mentioned there that some people choose their stores as this branding window, maybe not via sales. And I often back that and say, you can't even measure the prominence and the importance of flagship via what goes through the tills. It is so much more than that. It is a space for people to come and really understand the sculpted experience that they can't get anywhere else. It's a place for events where people want to come back to. And it's really like a nurturing hub to bring people into the community, to give them a taster of essentially how far we do go for our customer and what we do want to do to make them the centre point. Um, And it's also given us the confidence to open other locations.
1: But you're only seven years old so how did you develop the business during COVID?
0: So when COVID happened we were three, three and a half years old and I often say regardless of what would have happened in the world that time we were a young ambitious agile startup brand that we would have made anything work. Like we could have switched anything on that was necessary and thankfully we already had our website so I've always maintained an omni-channel approach from day one. So having the website and also having some stock in retailers. So thankfully, our online was already set up and ready. So we switched everything digital within 48 hours. So we had an academy that was in person that became online. We had digital assistants on our live chat to help you shop because store staff were obviously not on the shop floor. Um, at this stage, we didn't have our flagship, so we didn't have to really enter into that. Um, but everything just moved online. And do you know what? It accelerated so many ideas that we had, that we just had to switch on, get down, get the work done and get it live. Things like our virtual shade matching. So you go on and use an AI tool that shows you the foundation colour. Because when we're in our space, when you're shopping online, two of the biggest anxieties is the trust that it will arrive, which is what most sites will have. And secondly, how to pick your shade. So picking your foundation shade is so crucial and arguably one of the most difficult points for people to do on their own. So we really invested in our digital tools to be able to assist the customer in how to choose that.
1: So you mentioned using AI there. So this for visual or do you see a situation where your digital assistants will not be real people, but you'll be talking to a bot about what type of foundations or whatever you need? Do
0: you know what? Like the opportunities are endless. Like, I don't know where this world is going. I think it's really exciting. I think we're constantly keeping our finger on the pulse of what the next thing is, because we do like to enter into the conversation as soon as we can. Um, so who knows? We could have this, like, the one thing about the virtual tool is it's so backed up and rich with data. So there's many opportunities of what could come from that.
1: So you have this enormous database now of your customers and what type of things, and that gives you an opportunity to recommend other things to them.
0: Exactly. I think that's one of the best things about online. Um, Not only are you getting straight access to your customer, you also have the customer's data that you can arguably recommend right choices for them. You can tell when replenishment might be up because you typically might take two or three months in a foundation. Um, And it basically allows you to make better decisions as a business because outside of what they need, we can track who our main age group is, where are they purchasing from.
1: So does that mean that if you realise that somebody has bought product every couple of months that you can then offer them again? Are you in need of this rather than depending on them walking into the store and making the purchase?
0: Exactly. All reliant, obviously, on them actually having signed up and accepted any sort of communication from us.
1: But still, how important does the physical store remain? And the reason I say this is that one of the reasons that I did notice you recently was going to Dublin Airport and through the Duty Free and in amongst all the various perfumes and makeup counters and everything that my wife is visiting, you're very prominent in one store or one section there in the Duty Free. But when you go into somewhere like that or if you're in one of the 500 outlets that you're in, how much of your range actually gets sold? Because you know the range is how big?
0: Yeah, and I think that's constantly a battle for us when it comes to our wholesalers because we physically can't take up that much space on the shop floor. So when you think about a typical stand that we might have in a boot store, it probably has about 40% of our range on it. Now, within our range options also, you have many shades. So in our foundations, for example, we have 30 options of colours. They might stock 11 of those. So within that 40, you're still getting a flavour of hopefully most of our categories, just not every single shade.
1: Okay. You started, I believe, with a multi purpose makeup kit and a double ended brush. Okay. (laughs) What's a double ended brush? And I'm asking this for a particular reason. So a double
0: ended brush is essentially one brush that has two heads on it. So you can basically target two areas of the face with one item to make it easier.
1: Okay. The reason I ask this and I'll confess this that during COVID when in television we lost our makeup department temporarily. Of course, yeah. So I was given a kit and told I had to make, do my own makeup every night before I went on the Tonight Show, and a double-ended brush would have been very useful because it would have allowed me with the first powder on one <laughs> end of the brush exactly. and then the bronzer on the second. So I'm not completely ignorant. You when never it comes. know; there
0: could be tutorials by Matt coming soon.
1: <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. But anyway, but just go up a little bit more into the the social media. Because a lot of people worry about social media being a mean place. Uh, do you get any of that, that sort of people start giving out and that there can there's a degree of nastiness, particularly when you're maintaining a positive approach to how to help people make themselves look as they want to look?
0: Yeah, I think that, unfortunately, is always something that will come with social. Because I think as a general media channel, people naturally feel a bit braver to probably speak in a more nastier sense because they're not face to face with a human. And you often, you know, read it and go, would you really say that to someone's face? No, you wouldn't. I think as a brand we're lucky in that we have always been in the space of like filter free faces not putting a filter not editing not photoshopping and very much showing the true before and after so I think the trust is there with people that you know again touch wood because it can change in the morning we've very rarely had any sort of negativity I think I am also online as a human, Amy Connolly, as well as the brand. And I think that's often a question that I get asked, you know, how do you manage the negativity? For me online, I don't think I'm that controversial. I don't, like I'm online because I choose to be. And it's an amazing asset for the business and I can show the behind the scenes of the business. So if anyone's going to say anything nasty, it's usually like, you know, she works too hard or something that just, you know, water off a duck's back, it's fine. So I'm lucky in that I don't get a lot um And that it doesn't affect me too badly. But I also think it's our own personal responsibility to come offline if you feel like you need a few days of a break because it is relentless. It's 24-7. People feel like they have access to you at every second. But at the same time, that can be amazing as well in terms of how to scale a business or how to connect with your, with your audience online. Um, I did get a, a comment last week when I put up uh, what I was wearing and someone said I had awful dress sense. So she messaged me directly to tell me and I said, oh, that's a shame.
1: If that's just, you just push it off like that, it doesn't yeah. upset you or affect you in any and way. And I think,
0: you know, and I, and I don't mean to make light of that because I know there are some people online who really struggle with, with what comes into them and how they manage it. And I think I do feel very fortunate that I don't, but I, I think at the same time, I don't overshare on topics that could possibly put me in a love or hate
1: limelight. Prompted you to go into business, to start the business at what age, 23?
0: I was 23 when I found the brand. I was 22 when I decided to do it. Um, so I had studied business and French in UCD, so BCom International. But I had done makeup part-time since I was about 15. So I was very lucky to get a part-time job during the usual two weeks work experience that we have to do here. Nothing organised, ran into House for Asia and was like, can I have a job? And Benefit gave me a job for two weeks. And
1: you'd had no interest in a part of that, had you?
0: No. Like, I really liked makeup as a child, but I always wanted to be a teacher or something. Like, I really wasn't on that pathway. And then I adored selling. Like, literally, I was like this hyper puppy. If anyone came near the counter, hi, do you want to try this mascara? And I think I did well on sale. So they offered me a job across the way with Urban Decay. So I'd gotten great access to the world of makeup from a very young age. So, like, my part time job. At 17 and, you know, changing out of my uniform into my black clothes to go into the House Fraser floor every Saturday, Sunday and a late night evening. Like I thought I was the coolest human on this planet because my other friends are working in like a deli somewhere. So I was like this artist on the floor with absolutely no experience. But anyway... Um, I then went to Mac for a year when I was 19 on Grafton Street and um, that was the ultimate mega goal at the time and I loved that but I had started doing freelance so I was very lucky in that I was like putting myself forward for TV so you know the show Expose I used to be honest do that weekly and um, would write about beauty all that so basically got great access to all the facets within the beauty industry that I decided actually I really enjoy this but I was very committed to my studies like that was full time. actually it always was whether it was school or college that I was doing over the six years of makeup. But then I started teaching makeup as well like I mentioned at the start and that was very pivotal to my decision on starting the brand.
1: But that's a big jump from something that you clearly were enjoying doing and working with all of these international brands to suddenly deciding you could have your own brand yourself at the age of 22.
0: See I left Mac after a year so I have technically been working for myself since I was 20. Um, funny story, I have never sat in a job interview. So when I've hired all these people into Sculpted, I'm like, I've never sat in your chair. So it's been a random way in and a random journey so far, but it's been amazing. But I think because I've been working for myself about three years before I graduated, I was watching all of my peers do the usual graduate program applications. I was really busy in my field of makeup at this time. Like I was always legging it from one lecture to another and having something on in between. And I think I just inherently had this feeling of like, yeah, I'm never going to work for anyone else. I'm just going to go for it.
1: That still is a very brave stand to take at that stage because there's so much involved in setting up a business.
0: But you know what? For me, the secret was in that. It was the unknown around actually all that was involved. And I often say to people, you know, naivety can be a really good benefit in those moments because if I knew now what was ahead... I would definitely write a plan on the pros and cons, you know, is this, because it's, it's all in, like it's 24-7. Anyone who works for themselves will agree. Um, but at the time, I was so set on the product I wanted, I had not even considered the logistics and all that that would come with Did it. Did you
1: write a business plan?
0: No, still haven't.
1: Never written a business plan? No,
0: never. makes gives me
1: the fear. <laughs> okay, so you start off, but you have to have a bit of money.
0: Yeah, but I was really good at saving. I was always that kid. I'm an only child come from a tiny family. So it's just me and my mom. So I think, you know, mom has been amazing, but also like many others really struggled during the recession. So when I actually started working at 16, it wasn't just a, oh, I really want a job. It was like, you have to get a job because, you know, I had to. Exactly. And it was one of the best things I ever did because I loved it. And like outside of your own independence, it really built up my confidence working on the shop floor with customers. So there was many, many benefits to it. But fundamentally, it was a must for the family because it was just the two of us and and mum was really struggling at the time. So I think that was very ingrained in me around saving. And I was that kid at 17 who, you know, took a loan off my uncle to buy my first car and then paid him back every month and was just very good at managing, I suppose, what was coming in because I was lucky to have been getting my part-time salary from a young age. So I could kind of train myself. So, you know, this is six years on and I suppose my last two years in college, I really geared myself up to know, okay, I had done my Erasmus actually in my third year in France as part of my degree. And when I came back from that, I was like, okay, every month we put something away now to ultimately decide what we want to do after college. And then it was a 10 grand initial payment on our first stock order. And like, I did things very leanly at the start. Like in that first 18 months, I didn't hire anyone. It was just me going around pretending to be Anne from accounts on email when I was chasing invoices. There was no Anne to be seen or heard of. But I just didn't want to be like, hi, I'm Amy selling your product and now I'm pestering you for an invoice. Um, So I really managed when the stock was drawn down. So draw down some, sell some, get the money in, draw down the next. But it also meant that I was selling very little stock at different parts of the year.
1: So you entirely existed off cash flow Having made an initial ten thousand euro capital investment, yes, any bank debt
0: no no, and we're still, I still own a hundred per cent, and we're bootstrapped still.
1: That's extraordinary that you would be able to do that. And we'll we get into that a little bit more in a moment. But tell us, where did you get your supplies from?
0: So I literally Googled European manufacturers in cosmetics. So I knew from a regulatory point of view, I didn't have enough detail on that. So I needed to stick within Europe. At this stage, Brexit hadn't happened. The lovely Brexit, so the UK were still there. So I sent out a few emails. I actually, m- most of them didn't even respond. Um, one or two came back saying a flat out no. Because in fairness, I was like, hiya, I'm 22, I'm just out of college, I have this idea, it's going to be great. And they're like, you've no backing, you've no benchmarks, it's not happening. And there was one company that said, okay, yeah, we'd be interested in having a chat. And I was like, great, I booked a flight, I'll see you on Friday. And rocked in and had a conversation and they were my supplier.
1: Are they still your a supplier? No.
0: No, and that was one of my biggest learnings in business. So when I often get asked, you know, what was one of the biggest hurdles? What was one of the biggest things that could have set you back and you said, this isn't for me? Um, that company produced a really good product with me. So, you know, fundamentally, the function and the formula is perfect. What I felt at the time was that the respect to me professionally wasn't there versus other clients. And again, you know, I was quite naive, 22, you know, rocking over as this blonde with no... Business plan, no benchmark, just like I'm really committed to this product. But one thing I knew in my own good is that I was going to make it happen. And I just felt when I was drawing down the second part of the order that I wasn't being prioritized or given the time or respect as others. No, could have been in my head, I don't know. But I did fly over the February after launch and said, and I was terrified, but I pretended like I wasn't. And I said, if I don't start getting the respect that I feel others are getting and I'm paying a really fair price, I will walk. And you will regret not having my business. And I remember the reaction was ultimately exactly as I was expected. A little bit of a snigger, a bit of a, oh yeah, okay. I'm sure you will kind of thing. You know, good luck. And I walked out and that was it. And that was one of the best things that ever happened because three weeks later, I went to a trade show. I met our supplier from South Korea. And three weeks after that, I flew out to their factory to have a look at it, understand the lab. And they're still our key partner eight or nine years later.
1: In South Korea. So you head off to South Korea. When you get to the lab though, how much do you influence do you have on getting them to manufacture, make a product in the way that you want it?
0: So it can kind of depend on the product and it can depend on what I suppose you need from the lab. So one of the first or actually the first product that I um, produced with South Korea. It was called Beauty Base. And without getting too technical, it's essentially a multi purpose primer. So you've got SPF, you've got a bit of a glow, you've got a moisturising level into it. Nothing like it existed on the market because when you plonk SPF into something, it can sometimes be a really white block and it's very hard to get a nice glow through it or to moisturise in your skin, yada yada. But essentially, I flew out to South Korea. I had like three different products on my hand essentially saying I want to mix all these together. Within the third sample, they were nearly there. Like their access to skincare ingredients, their knowledge of blends is insane. At the same time, and again, we're going back many years now, so things are advanced. I had tried to produce that same formula in Ireland for about eight months and we were getting nowhere. Like the access of how to break down that SPF in the formula just wasn't there. So I think now when we look at our partnership with South Korea, it can depend. Like when we're doing skincare, I can say, I really want this ingredient in it. But also they have to come back as the text to say, disability wise, Amy, we can't do that. Or that percentage is too high and it's going to fluctuate with this and that. So I've equally learned so much because I literally wreck their heads when I go over there.
1: Do they treat you with the respect that you felt you weren't given in England? 100%.
0: Honestly, everybody since has. And it's nothing to do with England per se, it's nothing to do with a certain type of factory. I honestly think it was just down to those people. And very funny story. The brother of the owner of that factory, about three or four years later, passed my stand at a trade show in Vegas. And he said, which is so rude, I need to take a picture. My brother won't believe the success your brand has had. I was like, That is an indirect insult. (laughs) But no, but you know what? Like, I, I wouldn't be one for regret. So it did happen. But like I said, it was actually one of the best things that did happen for me.
1: Trade show in Vegas. So does that mean that you're looking at the United States as a potential market?
0: Definitely. I think our ambition is to be global. Like I fully am on a mission to build a legacy brand. And for me, that both means long term and it means a global footprint. And I think... Anyone to be truly global, the US has to be part of the conversation. Now in saying that, I am very aware of the challenge and the cost and all that is potentially ahead to do this. So we're threading carefully because we still have lots to do in the UK alone.
1: Yeah, so you're selling at the moment here in Ireland, the UK, what are the markets?
0: The UAE in the Middle
1: East. So that's it? You're not even in continental Europe? No. Okay.
0: So we sell there via our e but not physically in bricks and mortar. But continental Europe. So, firstly, there's there's three main markets we're looking at now. One is in Europe, one is Australia, and then US being longer term. But all that work has to start now because it takes a while to have the resources, the investment, and generally your market strategy ready for a new pl- for a new market. Continental Europe is a funny one in that yes, they're on our doorstep. Yes, we share the same currency and a lot of the time, similar time zones, and you think that's really easy. There are so many nuances per country within Europe, be it languages, be it what converts the customer. So a very random example, in France, you could have a product that sells number one here in Ireland and the UK, and the number one selling point is the SPF 30 in it. In France, they might not care about the SPF and it might be the anti-pollution protection. So you then have to go and rebrand and restructure all of the copy on your packaging or your tube or whatever it might be. So there's a lot of data to understand on who your customer is within those markets. And obviously for the bigger global brands, it's easier for them because the overall awareness is there. So people are buying into it because of who they follow on social and less so a first off discovery of the product like we would be going in. So again, coming back to the social media chat. That is absolutely fundamental to our global scale. It is the only way to reach people at a mass level in a cheaper way rather than trying to blast billboards everywhere.
1: Okay, so then talk to me about the United States because a number of things strike me in relation to there. One would be, what about FDA approval? or Are there other regulatory authorities that you would need before you're allowed to sell your products there?
0: So FDA is the main one. That is the only one. Um, and FDA have actually made a very crucial change to their system and processes recently that kicks in as of July next year. Um, so it's basically made us get our skates on because we have to be ready by July rather than saying, oh yeah, in 24, we're going to tackle this. So we've begun our FDA approval process about three months ago because we have such a level of product now, it takes a long time. Um, The funny thing with FDA is that they consider SPF to be an OTC, so an over-the-counter product. So essentially you're in the medicated form, hugely expensive, so much testing, and you actually sometimes sit in a different part of the store. So that's one of the biggest decisions we have to make because SPF is so synonymous with most of our complexion products that people find an amazing benefit because they're putting on a foundation with SPF 50 in it. So it's like a top up on top of their SPF and their skin that keeps them protected throughout the day because ultimately with SPF you have to keep reapplying it. So that's a big decision for us. Um, Arguably, and it's a little bit generalistic, the EU regulation is much tougher than FDA. So actually, from a formula standpoint, unless there are certain percentages of ingredients that might change within FDA, we're actually okay from that front. It's more just the physical paperwork of getting it all set up.
1: But then there's also the money that will be required to get into such a big market as the United States. I mean, what will it all cost to set up stores, be it in New York or Boston or Chicago? I presume you're only going to be looking at the big cities to start in the United States.
0: Yeah, so I've had many conversations on trying to ready ourselves for the US and deciding on the best strategy. I still don't think I have it fully plotted out, nor am I an expert by any means. But the main feedback we get told is you essentially have to treat the US as entirely different places. So, for example, I would imagine that we will start in New York. I think we're very much the city girl versus a beach girl. And like what happens in New York, what happens in L.A.? are just so polar opposites that they're literally different market strategies. So I think firstly, my biggest task to myself has not to been overwhelm myself and consider it as one plot within the US instead of thinking, hey, I have to do all of the US. But you're right, like the cost and the cash flow is the biggest thing that we have to consider. You know, I mentioned earlier, I'm lucky to still own 100%. I'm lucky that we've been able to grow this much to date whilst maintaining control in in a positive way. You know, being able to direct the business in the way that I want to grow it and feel we should. But at the same time, I am very aware that the investment conversation will have to be part of our US growth.
1: Yeah, so are you prepared to sell part of the business? Take on perhaps a partner?
0: Yes. And I think emphasis on the word partner. I think, you know, given that we've maintained profitability, et cetera, I think actually accessing money should be okay. I know times are changing, so I don't mean that to sound too ahead of ourselves. But I think in conjunction with the investment injection that we get, it's actually the partner that does it with us and you'd be helping to lean on their experience of having maybe scaled a company like us or having been in that experience role.
1: Yeah, but what sort of partner would you look to take on as an investment partner or would you look to take on a brand partner? Because sometimes what happens is if you were to take on Uh, a partner who has experience in this business, they would look to buy you out at some stage. And is this a business that you can ever see yourself actually selling, as many entrepreneurs do? Because I get the sense that this is really wrapped up in you. It is, like so much so that the name is actually in the title.
0: Um, But I think, listen, what I've learned over the last seven years is things change so fast and things are growing so fast. So... As much as I don't have an exit strategy, which I know some people find bonkers, um, but I feel very committed and we have just so much left to do. That's so exciting. But at the same time, I'd remain open-minded to what the future held. And I think, you know, for us to really scale in the US, get the right partner, part of that might have to be to give them equity within the business. And I think to your question on a brand partner or an investment partner, I would see it being both. I would see there being resources and experience to tap into within the investment partner, but then actually scaling up u s. specific resources on the team that have a total know-how of the market
1: you've done this by yourself largely, but presumably you must have now management alongside you do you particularly accountants, financial controllers. Have you developed a management team, and are you good at letting things go to other people?
0: Yeah I think I, I'm really lucky with the team I have. So we're now a team of 77 which includes across our flagships and head office. Um, I can honestly say that everyone is totally passionate about Sculpt and I think regardless of where you work particularly when it's a startup you have to actually care because I think within a startup you kind of have to give a bit more of yourself because you know the hours might be longer, the challenge might be tougher, but equally, you hopefully feel that you get that back both in feeling and seeing the benefits of the work you're putting in, but also getting flexibility within your working hours, whatever it might be. Um, I've definitely developed a really good management team. So I refer to them as my leadership team. And it's funny, I have started this business I've grown up with it. So I literally grew up in my 20s with Sculpted. So I've grown up as a person, as a leader, as a manager. One of the toughest things is people management. Like nobody teaches you that. Like you sit at the table, you have an idea about a product or a service. Like it is totally unknown what else is going to come with that. And now as CEO, and I feel like it's only really which sounds ironic in the last six to eight months, I feel like I'm really fulfilling this role of CEO where I am putting emphasis on the leadership team. I am focusing my mind more top line to the direction and growth of the business and trying to lead people rather than be in the detail of things. But that's an ongoing process the whole time.
1: You won the EY Emerging Entrepreneur Award two years ago. Do you have mentors that you can go and talk to at this stage?
0: So that's something I have on my personal admin list for 24 is to put together a board of advisors and also have like a mentor or a coach. I think I've been absolutely blessed with the networks that I'm in that people have been more than happy to jump on a call or have a coffee. But having like that consistent mentor for certain stages, no, not yet.
1: Tell us a bit more about your mother. (laughs) Ah, she's gas. Because clearly she has been a major driving force for you and you just have obviously an enormous Admiration for as well bringing you up on her own.
0: Yeah, and it's funny. Like I take for granted. Like my mom is my mom. Like most of us, you know, our parents are just they're always there. They're the consistent force. And it's really in the last like three or four years when I've been doing interviews and people are really pressing me on like, but where does your ambition come from and where why is it in you that it's made me take stock and go, yeah, like it it obviously was mom. Like I was growing up again, you know, female dominant household just the two of us the most tenacious woman that despite money struggles personal struggles career struggles whatever it might be she got up every day and she was no bother like I've had the most privileged life with one parent like hands down and people often say to me like oh god I didn't know you didn't have a dad I'm so sorry I'm like why are you sorry It's like I'm absolutely perfect and like delighted with life Mum took a career change in her 40s when she was in pharmaceuticals and decided I actually want to start my own property business. So my main memory of studying for my leaving cert, and I was a freak when it came to study, I wanted all A's, no messing. Like literally, not one person put that pressure on me but myself. And my mum would be studying on the table beside me for her property exams. So she decided late in life, yeah, I'm actually just going to pack this all in, do my property degree and I'm going to set up my property business. A no better woman. She is the biggest, of course you can, Ah, oh, that's great love, fair play to you. Yeah, of course you can. And she's lived her life through that way.
1: How conscious were you of not having a father in the house or even somebody to go to?
0: Honestly, not at all. And I know that sounds naive, but I think, you know, on the, the father subject, I don't really ever talk about it because I find that people sometimes want to lean into it in like a sympathy sense or like maybe a clickbait headline, oh, Amy doesn't have a dad. It's like people are going through separations, affairs, divorces. That is so much worse. Whereas I just never knew a life with that. So you've nothing to miss.
1: Yeah, it's what you grew up with. Exactly. You were familiar with.
0: It's like people saying to me, oh, your birthday's on Christmas Eve. What's that like? It's like, well, I, I don't know anything else. So it's, <laughs> it's lovely, you know.
1: The other thing about you though that I am fascinated by is your experience with scoliosis. Because I think I read an interview that you did about that and I think it's very important I would imagine for a lot of people who've been through the experience because that must have been very, very tough to have to have major surgery as a 17 year old.
0: Yeah, it was. And again, you know, I was really lucky. I was never really ill. Like I never missed a day of school, like when I was actually in secondary school and stuff. So it was, it was a random shock in that sense that I had it. Now listen, it's really common and I'm more than happy to to speak about it and raise awareness on it because like that, I went in very unknown to what it was. So I just had the classic, you know, hand run down your back when you're 13 and the nurse comes into school and then a letter came through the letterbox to say Amy has early signs of scoliosis again myself nor my mom were really very educated on it like it doesn't run on my family it's not genetic or anything and then it really progressed as i was coming out of puberty so i'd taken like a massive growth spurt and with that i had had a massive curvature so i went from kind of lying to the doctors about any pain i was having so when i was working in retail and doing long hour shifts i would have a bit of a pain in my left shoulder blade but i'd be like oh it's fine like i really don't want to have surgery so i'm absolutely fine And they would say, you know, in X amount of years, you might be physically curved over. You might have pain if we don't address this. But it got to a stage anywhere where the decision was taken out of it for me and I had to have surgery. And it is intense. And like, you know, if anyone listens to this with with kids going through it or maybe your kids have been diagnosed, it's absolutely fine. Like I live my life like any normal person and I, you know, I'm not held back by anything. But it is significant surgery. And I just don't think we were aware of how big it was.
1: Well, you were fortunate to get it done because I think the issue is for many children at the moment is the delay in getting surgery can make things worse for them. Yeah. So you were fortunate in that you got it done.
0: It is. And they often said to me, you know, you're better off getting it done the younger you are because your recovery is is easier and quicker. So I was 17. I was going into my leaving cert year when I had it that summer. Um, but the biggest thing I would say, again, to anyone who might be waiting to go through it or maybe is going to have it, You know, the surgery is one thing. What they didn't put enough emphasis on for me was the recovery. Or like recommending rehab or physio so I would definitely suggest that everybody does that just to help your own like you know my hamstrings are definitely tighter because everything was linked up and I didn't really stretch them out now I run exercise you know all that kind of stuff all the time where
1: so. do you get time to run an exercise <laughs>
0: honestly Matt if you could see my DMs on Instagram most questions I get is hi Amy what vitamins do you take and hi Amy how do you fit forty-eight hours into your 24 hour day but you just have to make it work
1: you're fairly driven aren't you
0: Yeah, I think so. I think...
1: And there's nothing wrong with that in any way.
0: No, and I I think, you know, people often ask me, like, what's your ultimate goal? And it sounds so simple. I am completely determined and committed to growing a legacy brand, like I said. But at the same time, and this sounds really amateur, I want to do it in a good way. Like, stay a nice person, stay humble, stay sound, stay Irish, whatever it might be. But absolutely committed to the journey ahead.
1: And you got married this year, didn't you? I did. And your husband's in business as well. He is. Okay. Which is great. On a smaller scale to you though. <laughs>
0: um, he's in business. He has the lovely um, opportunity of being in business with two of his friends. So they are franchisees of a of a Thai restaurant. But you know what? It's it's great that John is because he's very he's very patient anyway. But he's very supportive of the hours that I might work or the trips I have to go on. And also because he does work for himself, it means he can sometimes come on those, which is great.
1: Amy Connolly, it has been terrific getting the opportunity to talk to you. Of course, this is going to be a very busy week. We're talking to you just before Christmas. This must be great for the cash flow this week coming, is it?
0: Busy week is good. But you know what? Like, I'm so excited for Christmas. but I get anxious at the year being over. I'm like, I've so much left that I want to do. And everyone around me is like, goodbye. I'm ready to switch off. But no, busy week ahead. Best of luck to everyone working
1: in retail. Amy Connolly, thank you for joining us on Magnified. And that's it for today's edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper And I hope you've enjoyed Amy Connolly Who I'd imagine is going to be a very busy woman Between now and Christmas And indeed after Christmas as well As people start redeeming gift vouchers And the lot for her range of products I think she's I agree that she is somebody who's going to be very successful in the future. So that's it. If you enjoyed Magnified, please subscribe. So make sure that you see all the coming episodes coming up and go back maybe and listen to some out of the back catalog and also if you like them, please recommend to a friend. So until the next time for me Matt Cooper and again, thanks to Strategic Power Connect for the assistance in this. Goal out Presents
0: Magnified with Matt Cooper sponsored by Strategic Power Connect. Renewable
1: energy designed to suit your business needs. Visit strategicpower.co forward slash connect.
0: Go loud. Sounds better with us.